Hello, and welcome to the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week, we continue our coverage of Philip K. Dick's 1968 sci fi classic, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Now, let's grab onto our empathy boxes and fuse with Mercer. second book done yeah do androids dream of electric sheep completely finished uh, i'm pretty excited to jump into the movie next week we're gonna do blade runner 1982 and uh like seeing all these differences between the novel and the film uh was it really interesting so i'm just excited to get started yeah man me too i'm looking forward to it um i've been seeing people posting screenshots on twitter and stuff and it's just like hyping me for the even the old movie like i'm hyped before we get into the novel recap I wanted to talk about uh, something I saw on Twitter that had a uh, selection from from a from a biography I think about Philip K. Dick, and it's talking about how um, his reading about the Nazis uh, primed him to write this novel. So I'll just give the quote here: "Alone in the closed stacks at UC Berkeley, he discovered the diaries of an SS officer stationed in Warsaw. One line struck him: We are kept awake at night by the cries of starving children." I thought, there is amongst us something that is bipedal humanoid, morphologically identical to the human being, but not, but that is not human. He later told Starlog, it is not human to complain in your diary that starving children are keeping you awake. So yeah, essentially he read about these SS officers and felt like they were androids because they weren't really people. Well, or... Or like bounty hunters, right? Because they're seeing these androids as like these inhuman things. Like I guess the SS officers kind of had to like dehumanize these people that they were like in essence torturing. And so maybe it's like the SS officers are similar to the to the bounty hunters who are like having to kill these androids and realizing slowly kind of that they might have some sort of semblance of life as well. Yeah, or uh, you can take it one step out, and so if the if the Nazi soldiers are the SS officers, right, who are you know ignoring the starving children, then like the Allied forces who came in and and like you know liberated these concentration camps are essentially doing like what we talk about in the book, where he talks about in the book that you have to do something you don't like doing, like killing people, and so they're killing these Nazis even though maybe the people doing it don't like, you know, don't want to kill anybody, but they kind of have to do it. I don't know. There's, there's something there for sure. Before we get started, I also wanted to ask you if you could have an electric animal, what would you have? What kind of electric? So this is an animal that appears to be normal unless you look for its like little hatch on its stomach or something and you have to take care of it like a normal animal, but it's, but it's electric. It's a good question, man. Uh, my gut instinct is to go with something like really cool, like a wolf, but I feel like that's oh, yeah. a dangerous animal to keep, even if it is electric. <laughs> yeah, you're uh, if it starts to malfunction, you're in trouble, right? <laughs> yeah, I think. Yeah, you know, for the sake of the podcast, I think uh, the animal that I currently would get as an electric pet is a turtle. Ooh, I like that. 
Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, I guess, uh, I don't know if I'd want to do some sort of, like, farm animal, which seems to be popular in this book. Um, well, it's like, it's got utility, right? Because then you get, like, milk and cheese and all that kind yeah. of thing. But... Ooh, I know. What about, like, a little sugar glider? Okay, yeah. A little mechanical sugar glider that, that would, would like, fly around, fly around the fly around my apartment. That'd be pretty cool. Yeah, I like it. And then it can give me uh, existential despair as I think about the nature of its existence. <laughs> All right, uh, let's get into the recap. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. So we are covering the rest of the book, starting with chapter 11 all the way to 22. So in chapter 11, Phil Resch goes to get his test gear. because So when we last left them, they were getting ready to run these tests to see who among him, Garland, and Deckard are, are Andes, which, by the way, we should definitely bring up our predictions and where they went. So real quick, what were your, what was our predictions? I think you said you, you thought Garland was an Andy? Yeah. Or I, did I you def- say both? No, I didn't say both. I think I just said Garland, and I didn't say yeah, anything and, about Rush. Yeah, and I said I thought Phil was like was the was the um, Andy. Right. So, um, we'll we'll see how that how that plays out. Um, so, yeah, Phil leaves to go get the to go get the test, and basically Garland um, comes out and says, you know, he's not going to like what this test shows because he claims that the test is going to show that him and Phil are both androids. Uh, oh, so Deckard asks about like how, why when he tried to call his wife, it didn't. He didn't talk to his wife. Like got somebody else. And Garland says, you know, basically that the call stayed in house and went to another person in the building. Um, and it, um, he's essentially revealing that this is a false, not a, like a, like an alternate police headquarters run by androids, essentially. So when Phil Resch returns, uh, Garland basically immediately tries to shoot Phil. But Phil drops to the floor, draws his gun, and, quote, bifurcates his head. And uh, Phil kind of, like, cockily says, like, oh, yeah, I predicted he was going to do that. Um, That's why he didn't get me. Deckard is sitting there thinking, like, oh, man, this guy's also an android, because that's what Garland said. But I don't know if I want to tell him yet. So they decide to, that they're going to go together to take out Lupa Luft. Uh, Phil's basically going to sneak him out, like he's a prisoner. And so he takes him out in cuffs. But as on their way to on their way to the rooftop, Phil kind of starts to think about, oh shit, you know, I've been working here for three years. How is this possible um, that I didn't know that I didn't know? And um, he starts to have his his doubts about whether or not he is an Andy. And kind of um, this this starts a kind of a series of things where Phil is having this like self doubt about whether or not he's even real. Phil says, after we take down uh, Luba Luft, I want you to give me the test. And uh, Deckard kind of agrees. I think um, there's a moment where Phil Resch was talking about how he has this memory of how long Garland was in in place, right? It was like three right. years or something like that. And then he comes to realize that he may have had like an implanted false memory. It's like he can't trust his own memory. He can't trust all these things he thinks he knew because he was working for an android. So as far as our predictions go... So far, Garland was. So far, Garland, yeah. I guess we'll wait and reveal the rest stuff as it gets revealed to us. But yeah, so Garland is an Andy. I guess I was wrong about that. I can't remember if I predicted he wasn't or was. But I know you definitely were right because you predicted he he was and he and he was. <laughs> and apparently, and it's seeming like that with false memories that that Resh might also be an Andy. Yeah, I was thinking my I was th- I was like oh I'm I think I'm right on. Yeah. 
Um, so chapter 12, we get to the opera house and then um, they're directed to a museum actually to find Luba Luft at something called the Munch exhibit. Phil asks Deckard, he said, do Andes ever own animals? And Deckard says, yes, they do, but it's rare. And uh, Phil kind of reveals that he has a squirrel back in his apartment. And he thinks he takes this to be like proof that he can't be an Andy. He's like, I, 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 how can I have a squirrel if I'm an Andy? And then so they go into this museum exhibit while they're talking. And um, they actually they see that. So I, I was wondering if you figured out what this painting was there. They see a very famous painting um, called The Scream. Did you recognize it as, as that painting? Yeah, I did. Um, when they were talking about the hands on the on the face and the, the opening, and it was kind of like abstract, like it wasn't like yeah. completely. Yeah, it's the it's the one with the person on the on the bridge and they're screaming and like the whole world is like rippling from their scream and they look all like kind of like an apparition almost. And so they have a conversation about that, and then they spot Luba Luba Luft and they both move in, and they they tell her. You know that the whole police thing was what were a bunch of Andes, and she says to Phil Resch, like, "Well, if I'm, you know, you're no more human than I am," and essentially confirming that he is an android. She's sitting there admiring, by the way, a painting called Puberty, which I did actually Google, but it's by the same it's by the same painter and this Munch guy. And did you did you look this up? Oh no, I didn't. I didn't even. I did, I thought that maybe a. Uh like a fake painting that he made up for the story no yeah it's a real painting of this girl sitting on the uh, edge of a bed as basically as it's described in the in the uh book and i'm not really sure exactly what the significance of these paintings are other than the thing it's it's supposed to be about like you know someone kind of going from one stage of their life into another and starting to have dawning realization of what it's like to be an adult and so maybe if you take that to be about like the nature of life and Maybe the dawning realization that maybe you're not what you thought you were. Maybe you're an Andy. I don't know. Well, also, yeah, Andes are, they only last a couple of years or something. Yeah, we find that out later. They don't really go through puberty. So maybe it's something that she's fascinated with because she has like implanted mm. memories where she remembers going through puberty, but knows that she's an android. Oh, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, that could be exactly it. They take her up to the rooftop and on their way, on the way, uh, Deckard buys a, like a little printout of that painting for her. Cause she asks, you know, she asks him to, and Phil's kind of like, why did you do that? Um, they get on the elevator and, uh, Luba, Luba left says that Phil would have never done that because he's an Android and he doesn't care. And so Phil gets like really like unsettled and upset by what she's saying. She's essentially telling him he's an Android, but Deckard wants to administer the test. He's like, no, don't shoot her. We got to administer the test. Phil basically draws on her, tries to shoot her, but he misses and like uh, hits her in the stomach. And she starts screaming, which Deckard like is thinks about the painting of the scream, and then he kills her. Uh, Deckard kills her himself, kind of putting her out of her misery. It seems like she's pretty mortally wounded. And then uh, Deckard, like in a you know kind of a fit of peak, blasts the book apart that he bought for her. Then he asks uh, Phil if he thinks that uh, androids have souls. So this is kind of um, our first look at how how Deckard is kind of reacting to killing these androids this is the first time that I feel like we, we really saw him caring for an Android. Yeah. Cause he, I mean, he bought her the book and like Resh was saying, like you don't make that much money. What's the point of buying it for? And you know, it was a nice thing to do, even though he knew that he was going to have to retire her probably. And 
it's just showing that like he's he's starting to sympathize with these androids it is i think the first kind of i don't know this book in general is pretty feels to me like it's kind of distant from character emotions we often get these character emotions kind of told to us um just like he's feeling unsettled or whatever which is kind of an older way of writing they don't do that a lot nowadays but here it's it's like this is like we can see him taking actions that de- are demonstrating the fact that he is upset and so i feel like this is one of the more, like you said the one of the more affecting scenes where you really get an idea of his mindset now and that he this is upsetting him killing these killing these andes is upsetting him and right after this he says to to phil like i'm retiring after today and he says other androids should do this job i shouldn't have to kill a talented singer but and 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 then they're like heading up to the rooftop and phil has become convinced now after seeming to be convinced that he is an andy he says now you know what i think they're all lying and they've been they've been telling me that i'm an andy to pit us against each other and he says so i'm gonna have you do the test but if i fail i want you to take my squirrel and um deckard goes to a phone booth which i noted because i thought that was pretty funny um you know future phone booths he calls back to schedule a bone test on uh, Lupa Luft, and then when he returns, he tells Phil, he says, I hope you fail the test. Because he says, you like to kill, unlike me. So he basically has decided he thinks that Phil has to be an android because he likes it too much. And he says, you're just looking for an excuse to kill people. Phil says, well, if I fail the test, I'm going to kill myself. And the cops show up, one recognizes Deckard, um, so they seem to be the legit cops. And they leave. He says, I'll give you my gun so I'm not a threat. And if I have to kill myself, I'm just going to hold my breath. Which I thought was pretty interesting. Because apparently if you're an Andy, you can do that. You can just hold your breath until you die. Yeah, there's something interesting. That was, this is the first time that we learned that. And it kind of comes back into play later. Um, they don't have, they, I guess they start to deteriorate almost immediately. Like if they hold their breath for long enough, like they, they, they like will, they don't have like a function to, to force themselves to breathe. And then it talks about how like they literally start to break down kind of slowly. Yeah, and apparently they can just self-induce this if they want. Um, so uh, Deckard says, I can't use your test because he's realizing that he would have to rely on Phil to interpret the data. And because he could be an android, it would, he wouldn't be able to trust it. So he admi- he, go- he administers the empathy test. We, we, we then flash forward and the test is complete and Phil has passed the test. And he's a human, so I was wrong. Um, and it was back and forth there for a while. I actually thought you were um, right. I thought he was an Android for yeah, sure for a little bit. I thought so too. Like I kept feeling like my prediction was right on, but, but it makes sense now that I think about it that, you know, I've read the whole book. Like I understand that not everyone who seems like they are an Android is, you know, like he is just like this guy who has less empathy than Deckard does and has no empathy for the androids. Yeah. And I think Deckard says in his, in his results, he finds that he kind of like, he has like a defect like he's not able to empathize as much as normal people are with the androids or something like that or like like resh clearly has like some sort of like you were saying before like a sociopath like he kind of isn't registering as a total human but he's obviously not an android yeah so he uh, deckard says you know there's a type of empathy we don't test for and that's empathy for androids and phil's like well we can't taste we can't test for that because then we wouldn't be able to do this job and they would take over which is the risk i guess this is that's kind of the threat the implication is that androids will eventually wipe out humanity if they're not kept at bay um 
So Deckard says, I want you to ask me one question from the test myself. And he like sets up the thing to to test himself. And he um says, like, he basically says, like, you know, you're with a female android or you're with an android in the elevator and someone kills her for no reason. And he has like no response to that. And then you're like, he's like, you're with the with with a female android in an elevator and someone kills her for no reason. And then that like registers a response. And so he like self-diagnoses basically that he's <laughs> kind of a sexist and apparently it's the fact that it's a woman that is bothering him more than the fact that it's an android because uh yeah it's safe to say deckard's got a weird view of women definitely and i mean resh goes as far as to say like it's not even necessary like basically like he's just thinking of sex like he's just saying like the reason that he's having that response is because he wants to have sex with the the female robot yeah, which apparently is true. <laughs> um, uh, then uh, Phil also says, uh, "You know what? You should you should sleep with the android first, then kill her if this happens again." And that's where we're left on that chapter, which is kind of like this ominous, also like shocking thing he says, right? Which we'll note for later. All right, chapter thirteen, John Isidore chapter. Uh, he's returning home from his job. He's gotten some food and some wine, and he, uh, from his safety deposit box, he had at Bank of America. Um, and he's going to go to find Pris Stratton. And he goes down to her uh, apartment, knocks on the door, and she sees the food and kind of gets excited. And then she kind of goes, oh, well, it'll be wasted on me. And I wrote here, and like this is something I continued to be a little bit confused about. Like, do they eat? Do they need to eat? So they are, I, I mean, how it shakes out. I don't know if we know all of these facts up to this point, but they are biological. Like, yeah, they're not necessarily that's, that's like true. circuitry and stuff. So they're biological. So I would think that they were a- they have to eat. But then again, we learn later that they haven't like mastered cell regeneration and that kind of thing. So I'm not really sure. Maybe it's like they don't. I don't think they do. I don't. I think that if they if they needed to eat, it would be like kind of like a. Because then the androids would become because they're 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 originally made to be on Mars and I'm sure there's like not as much resources on Mars, so it would be like a deficit to make your your androids that are supposed to be serving you eat yeah. food. Yeah, yeah. It seems like they can eat, but maybe they don't have to. I think you're right. Yeah, it's kind of a it is. This is reminds me of some questions I had during Westworld, honestly. Um, because there is at times where it seems like they you know don't have like normal function and then other times they seem like indiscernible from humans and so you assume they would eat well we can same kind of thing here we can make a note of it because later we learn that like they can get drunk yeah that's true maybe they're affected by it and they can enjoy it but it's not they don't need it yeah i was a little surprised when they could get drunk i didn't think that was going to be a thing but it is later so anyway johnny sador is there and he says he doesn't have any friends and she said she this is when she first reveals that she did. She said, I have seven of them, um, but the, the bounty hunters have dwindled that number down. And she says that there uh, there are killers hunting her. And she lists the other Andes that we know Rick Deckard killed, plus two others we haven't met yet. And I said, this is the first time where this kind of blows my alternate timeline theory out of the water. Like that's this is a clearly the same time. Um, but. On one hand, I was wrong about that, but um, I was right about something else, too. So it's a mixed bag. Yeah. I mean, I it definitely seemed like it could go either way. She offered, uh, Isidore is like p- pictures the bounty hunters, as these like giant demigods hunting them down. And 
and killing them. And he finds that to be terrible, so he offers to protect her. So he makes the table. She admits to being friends with these Andes, who, and they live together on Mars, and said it was lonely there. She she doesn't admit to being an Andy um, yet, even though she's kind of like walking around it, like talking, you know what I mean? I guess because he's a chicken head, uh, John doesn't seem to be quite picking it up. He thinks maybe she's just friends with these Andes, but she's not one herself. And then they have this discussion about pre what they call pre-colonial fiction, which was written about space by writers before space travel was invented. And I thought this was kind of an interesting meta moment where we're talking about sci-fi, you know what I mean? Like, And now, you know, not necessarily the time he was written. It's almost like the sci-fi that he would have been reading, maybe growing up, seems to be have like become popular on Mars. And literally like paperbacks and magazines that get shot up there in a, in a rocket. They're talking about this like kind of uh, sci-fi talk and then um, they hear the door and uh, John, you know, kind of the thing is like, oh shit, is this the bounty hunters? And John goes to the door and finds out that it's actually two more androids, a Roy Beatty and a Ermgard Beatty, which I could not read that name without thinking Ermagerd, like the dumb internet meme. Like I could never look at it without seeing that. <laughs> Ermgard, Ermgard. Yeah, every time. Did, did you think of that? I actually did, yeah. And when you said it, when you said it just now, I was going to make a comment about it. Ermgard. <laughs> yeah. So what, what did you think of this scene? I mean, I like the introduction of uh, these other two Andes. And I think, I don't know if it's in this chapter or the following chapter with these characters, but we kind of learned that like um, one of them is the leader. One of them's kind of like a companion to the leader. And then Pris is uh, one of the other androids. Something else. I mean, I really like the the pre colonial war magazine stuff. It's just like a cool yeah. bit of world building, and it like it seems like a natural progression because like you can see what people collect now, and like the things that are harder to get. Yeah, obviously, it's true. Like vintage. Yeah, and so I don't know. I just thought that was that was cool, and and I was like, man, I want to get my hands on some pre colonial war content <laughs> and collect it. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, like the, basically what happened, what you were just describing happens in the next chapter. And uh, Isidore, because of this, vows he's going to protect them all. They don't need to worry. He's going to protect them from the bounty hunter. So, oh, also, uh, Pris is now going to move in with John. And while they're there, um, Roy's going to set up this bug. It's supposed to be like a two way bug so they can hear each other's rooms and be able to tell when the, when the uh, bounty hunters show up. And he also sets up this trap that is going to, if it is triggered, it's going to set off this like panic mood that will affect humans and make them just basically like run away and and um, lose their shit. And he says that he's going to calibrate it to sense that there's one human there and John, and then if there's a second human, that's when it will go off. And I guess that's important to remember later. I think that's why... This doesn't really come up again. Oh, so uh, John John is kind of talking about being a special and he, how he wants to be like them because they're so smart. And he, if he was as smart as they are, then he would pass the test that labeled him a special. So it's also kind of a meta moment where we're talking about, we're not meta, but uh, uh, there's they're drawing a comparison there, I think, about how he has to, he had failed another, t- a different kind of test 
that labeled him as a certain kind of thing. Oh yeah, so I should say that Roy, when he's talking, lets slip that that they're all androids and that um, Pris is an android, and John doesn't seem to care, and and that's when he goes into about how um, he wishes he could be like them. I think it's interesting that like this kid, this guy is like a chicken head, and it's it seems like because he hasn't been treated that well, he doesn't really care that these people are androids. Like he doesn't see the difference in human and android. Like what do you? I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, it is like he just likes having friends. He likes having people around him and he is treating them like they are like they're people, like they're humans. And he, he kind of thinks it's it's he doesn't view them in this way as them being subhuman. And it's interesting because I I really like the way that PKD, as I, I've seen him described as that on the Internet, so I don't want to write out his entire name, I guess. Um but yeah, PKD like it's really toying with our um with our emotions here. And he does this throughout the novel because these these chapters are really bringing us over to the android side and feeling like, "Oh, these are people and you can't be doing this to them." And so I was like with I was with John in this moment and I'm like, "Yeah, fuck that. They're they're people and and it's like, yeah, you know, Roy seems like kind of a dick, but you know, ultimately they're all they're all just other beings, right?" And that's kind of the way like the book is like is manipulating your feelings to make you feel that way, which I think is pretty masterful. And that's one of the things I do give this book a lot of props for. Yeah. And like he, for now, at least they're treating him like really well and like telling him he's special and like all these things. And obviously he hasn't had that much interaction. I kind of like the progression of, of, of John's character too. Like, I guess we'll get more into it later as we get to the end of the story. Well, I mean, I mean, what do you mean by that? Just kind of how we see him be like, more reserved and he's on his own and then we see him uh like kind of have to have to deal with something kind of difficult at work and then because of that mm-hmm. he becomes like a little more confident and then he like meets these people and he's like he doesn't care that they're androids and he's like I'm going to protect them I want to they're being nice to me they're my friends so I'll I'll help protect them so I just it's cool to see even though he's a chicken head like he, he's got an arc right okay um so they take a vote and I thought this was kind of interesting and um all, uh, basically, um, Pris and Ermagerd Erm, <laughs> er, vote that they should stay uh, there with John. And Roy is like, nah, we should kill him and go somewhere else. <laughs> and um, But he's outvoted two to one, I guess. And uh, so they decide they're going to stay, which makes John happy. And then uh, this is the first time we got like a POV switch in the middle of a chapter, which I thought was a little odd. And I think it might be the only time in the in the novel that we do get that. Um, every other time the POV switches come with chapter breaks. Maybe that's just a writer thing. But to me, was that like, did you find yourself kind of um, surprised to be jumping into Deckard's POV? Yeah, I had to do a double take. I had to like, I, I was reading and I was still thinking in Roy, or not Roy, but in John Isidore's story. And then yeah. like, I saw Rick and I was like, wait a second. I like went back up and made sure. It's kind of a writer thing where they you're kind of the, the common knowledge is to like be consistent. And we're we're in the second half of the book here when this is the first time this happens. So it's a little odd, you know, and I think it throws the reader just a little bit, but not too bad. He does have a line break in there, which kind of signifies that something could be changing here. So we're back in Deckard's POV and he's on his way to Animal Row because he has got his money from from retiring three Andes today. And he decides and this. I thought this scene was really funny. 
Um, essentially, this guy he's dealing with is like a used car salesman, but for animals. And they start like talking about like what he can afford, and he wants he's like asking about like oh can I, I can get like a bunch of rabbits, and he's like, I don't know man, I, you don't want to get rabbits. This is what everybody has. You seem like a goat man to me, or she says like you you seem like you're ready to upgrade into being a goat man, and um, so he kind of gets talked into that, and he asks like oh what's good about goats, and they say oh they're super resilient, you know they can eat a bunch of food that other other animals would die if they eat. And uh, Deckard starts to admire this big black goat. They have this like kind of haggle back and forth about the about the price of it. And I thought another thing that was really funny the dealer says is like, "Oh, are you are you just going to be getting this animal, or do you want to? Are you going to be trading in a used animal?" Quote unquote. <laughs> Which the idea of a used animal is pretty funny, and also like in a dark way. Deckard uh, puts down all of his money as a down payment which we learn is just like the beginning of a bunch of payments he's going to have to make on this goat um, to get this big black goat. And uh, he leaves to go back home to his wife. I, I also thought it was pretty funny. I was, I just don't know why a goat, you know, if he has 3000 and he's able to buy this awesome goat, I would just, I don't know. I feel like I'd just get something <laughs> more exotic. I guess like we were saying in the beginning, like the farm animal thing is cool for utility reasons, but like it just doesn't really, I don't know. It's not the coolest animal to look at. I get the resilience argument, though, because goats are famously like they eat garbage yeah. and they're fine. So there is something to be said for that. That was Rick's like he was like, oh, well, my sheep died. So I need to make sure that this goat lasts forever. And that was kind of his. Yeah, I think so. And I think there is also an interesting parallel being made here where the buying and selling of these animals, they're being treated like like we said, like used cars. Right. Which is itself a machine. So even though they're alive, they're not really being treated like they're alive in these in these interactions, right? It's just more showing that it's just status, and like they they don't really care. Like they care because like companionship and that kind of thing, but they don't, they don't care about the well being of the of the animal itself. They care more like I I need to make sure it stays alive so that I have an animal so people think better of me, right? They have a user's, literally a a goat user's manual later that he's like, oh, we need to read this, like, you know, how to handle and care for our goat manual that we now have. And it's just like if you brought home a new TV or something and you're like reading the manual to how to set it up. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, he gets home with Iran and he surprises her with this new goat. She's all excited about it. And she wants to just like let it run free, like run around free. But he's like, no, we need to leave it tethered for a few days. And of course, Bill Barber from chapter one is out grooming his horse. And he's like, oh, nice goat, uh, Deckard's. And it's it's interesting kind of like domestic moment that I wasn't expecting to get where they're like this happy couple with their new goat kind of showing it off. And while they're while they're doing that, she says like, oh, we need to go down and fuse with Mercer. Uh, it's immoral not to. And essentially her argument is they have this joy because they just bought a new animal. And if you fuse with the Mercer, you are with Mercer. You are like sharing all of your joy with anybody else who also has logged in to do this. And so it's this like communal joy thing. And Deckard seems to be worried that like they'll lose their joy, that the other people will kind of take it from them. Um, but she counters and says that's not really how it works. So I was unclear whether or not that was actually true. And then they head down the elevator and he starts telling her about his day. You know, how he's had a rough day and he's and he's retired three Andes. And he suggests that he has begun to feel empathy for Andes. And 
it's interesting because she kind of reverses her position from earlier in the novel where she is kind of now worried that if he is to switch jobs, which he's suggesting he might want to switch jobs, she's worried they're not going to be able to pay for the goat. And she's now more like concerned with being able to keep this goat he just bought. I feel like I was able to get more clearly what was going on with the empathy box in this. And then I ran was just like, no, that's not how it works. Because it would make sense as to why Decker doesn't like to do it. If you kind of lose your, it all becomes like this kind of like neutral thing where it's like people who are in bad moods connect in order to feel good. And the people in good moods connect so that those people can feel good. But then it kind of brings their mood down a little bit. Like I was on board with that. but So I kind of, yeah. I kind of tend to believe that's how it works because of what happens a little bit later. It's interesting because I, I was taking it to almost be like a metaphor for maybe this is just me going way too extrapolating way too much. But I was taking it to be almost a metaphor for like different philosophical points of view when it comes to like politics and like the idea of essentially it's almost like a libertarian point of view to say, I don't want other people to take things from me. And then it's like a more of a like socialist point of view to be like, I want to share in the common good of, of the community. And I think it's kind of good that he doesn't really come down either way as being correct. He kind of leaves it open. But I don't know. Did, is that does it seem like I'm taking too much out of it to you? No, I mean, I, I didn't think of it like that at all. But I think that's that's definitely a cool way to look at it. Because whenever I look at it, I was just getting like religion and thinking of like religious things. But yeah. to, to put the political spin on it is kind of interesting. I didn't think about that. Yeah, that's just where I'm at, I guess. <laughs> um, so while they're um, getting ready to uh, getting ready to do this fuse, Harry Bryant calls on the vid phone, and wife go. The, the, uh, Iran just goes over to the to the to the fuse box. <laughs> I almost want to call it no, the empathy box, and um, she like kind of logs into that and is checks out. Harry Bryant gives uh, Deckard the address where they've like, i guess tracked these andes i don't know how they know that they're there but somehow they've, they've tracked them to this rundown apartment which we know is where they're at with johnny sador harrier tells him you need to retire them tonight because they're not going to expect you to come this fast and you'll get the kind of the jump you get the jump on them and deckard says deckard kind of doesn't want to but it, because harry orders him to he feels like he's gonna have to right and he says uh well if i do this i'm gonna buy a sheep um and then um harry's like i thought you already had a sheep and he's like it was fake and then he hangs up <laughs> and then he takes place he takes his wife wife's place on the fusion and now we get like kind of a quasi-religious moment here um seems to me where he speaks with wilbur mercer in, uh, with fusing also um i wanted to say this is our first confirmation that deckard is not an andy because it is said that they can't do this. They can't fuse with Mercer. So I thought it was interesting that this is like confirmation for the reader. Because um, I thought we were going to go to the very end wondering whether or not he was actually an Andy. I won't say much, but coming from the, the film, I also thought, like I was also thinking that this was always going to be a through line, that it was just going to be like, is, is he or isn't he? And it might be left ambiguous. Yeah, I thought that too. Um, so um, he talks to Mercer and Mercer kind of says, like, you need to do the task that you don't want to do. Um, that's the way of life. And you kind of have to you have to go through these things you don't like anyway. And then while they're talking, he gets hit with an e on the ear by a rock and it knocks him out of it, kind of. And um, he says goodbye to his wife and hops in his hover card. And he's like, I'm going to do this job. 
then after it's over, I'm going to switch jobs and I'm going to do something else. So um, something I wanted to mention was this like Mercer in this in this scene takes on like this Christ like Mm. he's like kind of a Christ like figure and like a specific part that I pulled out that I wanted to say was um, Rick asks Mercer what the empathy boxes are for and Mercer says that you aren't alone. I'm here with you and always will be go and do your task even though you know it's wrong. So I just thought that it's interesting because these are like because i mean in our time here we religion is about faith and like this seems to be a religion that's based on like concrete things that are happening to you but also abstract because you're like inside this empathy box yeah i mean we'll we can talk later about what we think mercer actually is but yeah it does seem like they are somehow communing with a being um through this empathy box that is also kind of godlike and at the same time like that empathy those empathy boxes have to be like mass produced by somebody so it's like some sort of like company who's got like christ in their pocket who's able to like you know what i mean they have the market oh that's true yeah they can just sell this stuff to people and they buy into this religion oh i know i've seen just from like watching trailers and stuff i know that atari the atari corporation is like a big part of the blade runner universe or maybe not a big part but they're just like prominently featured in the, the trailers i've seen um It'd be funny if it was like if they had something like this, like the Atari brand empathy box. That'd be awesome. Yeah, I'd like that. Anyway, so uh, so in a kind of a bizarre turn of events here, he calls Rachel Rose and he's like, yeah, you need to come help me. She says, oh, well, I can be there in an hour, but I can't really come tonight because I you know, haven't eaten dinner and I'll come in the morning. And he's like, no, you got to come tonight. I bought a goat. You got to come tonight. I'm going to go, you know, fight these Andes and I got to do it fast. And she kind of keeps refusing. And then all of a sudden he's like, you know what? Just come down here and we'll get a hotel room and we'll do something else. And she's like, okay. And agrees to head down. <laughs> and that's the end of, the, of that chapter. I like how Philip K. Dick used like FaceTime as like the, the yeah. primary communication uh, system, I guess. And it's funny to see like in this day and age, we have that capability. And yet I feel like oh, for we're the doing mo- that right now. We're, we're on a vid phone call with each other right now. Yeah, but I feel like for the most <laughs> part, when people are calling people or communicating with people, they, they don't have that face to face interaction. And it's funny to, to think like that, that like, I mean, 20, 30, 20, you know, 20 years ago, people thought that the natural progression would be when you call somebody, you would see them, you would see their face. And then it's just funny to see that, like, that's not kind of what society has adopted. Although it's funny, and I don't know if you have anyone like this in your life, but like my dad, I would say 80% of the time when he calls me, he FaceTimes me. Really? Well, I, I maybe that has something to do with um, you being like across the country. You yeah, know, like that's true. he's not able but to see you in person. Yeah, like he loves, he loves FaceTime. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Whereas like our generation, it's like I'd rather just text and then not have anyone even call me. I guess I'll, I'll wait until we get into more of it. Um so this hotel room stuff starts happening. Um, Deckard is in this next chapter. He's waiting at the hotel room and he starts reading deto- details about these remaining androids. And he notes that Ermagerd is attractive and then immediately dismisses her as a threat, <laughs> which I, uh, such a Deckard thing to do. Did you notice that? He's like, he's like, looks at the female. And he's like, oh, she's attractive looking. And then he like looks at the man. And he's like, oh, this is the one I got to worry about. Yeah. He's, it's funny that he's like not even threatened. It's yeah. I mean, it's just Philip K. Dick in the sixties and like completely untrue, but it's just funny to see how they thought back then. 
Yeah. I mean, it's also like it's a fucking android. Like, there's nothing that says she couldn't be the the ringleader, the the one who's the most dangerous. You know what I mean? They all have the same brain. But no, he's just like, oh, look how attractive she is. She's not a threat. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty funny. Um, So oh, this is where we get the confirmation that fusion with Mercer is actually impossible for Andes. So that it kind of retroactively confirms that Deckard is definitely not one. Um, He also has this moment where he says, "Do an- I wonder, do androids dream? And that's the closest we get to the full line of the of the title here. Do androids dream of electric sheep? Yeah, I guess maybe at the end, at the end, do you want to, do you want to talk about like our answers to that question? Yeah, we can do that. Okay. Uh, We can try it at least. Um, So Rachel Rosen arrives and she's basically like wearing like a bra and shorts under this like long fish scale coat and she's got bourbon in her hand and um, she's brought it to, to get drunk with him. And um, he starts talking about the Andes and she's like, I thought we were going to do something else. And she opens up the bourbon and says it's from before the war and it's like a genuine mash. This is a perfect moment for me to talk about how um, Johnny Walker is releasing a special edition black label Blade Runner brand um, or branded scotch. And I guess it's because Scotch prominently features in the 80s movie. Do you remember that? Yeah, I think it does. I'm pretty sure it's it's seen a bunch. Yeah, and so I thought it was funny that in the book, it's not Scotch, it's bourbon. And as a, like a, I don't know if I'd call myself a connoisseur, but someone who drinks a lot of whiskey, bourbon and Scotch are pretty different in that, you know, the regions they're made. Bourbon is an American whiskey and Scotch is from Scotland. And um, so I just thought it was interesting that they switched that for the movie, right? Like they didn't keep it as bourbon, which seems to be the more prominent whiskey in this novel. Yeah. So anyway, if you want to celebrate the novel, get a bottle of bourbon. The movie, bottle, bottle of Johnny Walker. Um, so she takes off her coat and says, all right, what are we going to do? And he, I just said he ogles her. There's like a paragraph of him just like looking at her body and being like, oh, I like this and I don't like this. You know what I mean? <laughs> It's uh, kind of a weird moment. It is definitely weird. I've, it's there's been weird moments in, especially. I mean, I will. I just want to address the fact that he like Deckard like sees her as like this younger girl, and like sees her as yeah. like very young, not not like child, yeah. but like very young. Well, he says like she has the body of a child, but like the face of an adult woman, which or something. Is, it's very yeah, very weird. Which is weird. <laughs> and like now, both of the books that we've that we've addressed, we've had like these weird <laughs> like, and like he's descriptive about it too, just like Stephen yeah. King is descriptive of the you know the group orgy scene and and it so we keep running into these weird situations which if you're like what the fuck are they talking about then uh yeah go check out our uh was it our fifth episode part five discussion yeah if you wanted to find out what that's about (laughs) they have some conversation here that I, i think is important to get into though um and uh so they get into bed and um Rachel reveals that the other android that they're going to be hunting down looks just like her and that it's going to be a problem for him. And she starts to say, like, I feel like I'm just a representation of a type and, like, I'm not an individual at all. And she kind of has this moment of, because she's thinking about this identical, like, version of her and she's worried that 
the identical version is going to kill her and then like take her take her place back at the Rosen Corporation. She does admit that she's come along that she has come along basically by orders of the corporation to uh, to observe what happens so that they can improve the the next version of this nexus brain to make it even more indiscernible from human beings basically to figure out how they're able to catch them and use that to improve their systems and it seems like deckard kind of like knew that already like he's not surprised by this revelation he like she like keeps coming on to him he like goes and drinks some whiskey and he's like being coy um and then she gets really drunk like we talked about before she starts like slurring her speech she uh she undresses keeps enticing him and he's like looking around in her purse for an object that she said like she tells him to look for and she finds this um he finds this like disc that is supposed to momentarily restrict the breathing and like everybody around including like andy's and people alike and this is what you were talking about before that um we learned that he even though he wouldn't be able to breathe like he can still do something for like you know the amount of time someone can hold their breath probably whereas like an andy will immediately start like you said like start dying if they can't breathe and then um so he she's basically given him this weapon to use um that might help turn the tables and then uh he finishes undressing her exposing her pale cold loins <laughs> uh which uh wow yeah they have this conversation about how she's like don't be too philosophical while we're doing this or it'll get depressing for both of us and basically he has to just ignore like the realities of what's happening and uh then he they have sex well uh, i should say she she he makes her promise that she'll kill pris for him or he doesn't make her she offers to kill pris for him and that's when he finally is like all right now we can do this because that's going to be one less andy that he's going to have to kill all right so what did you think of this whole uh deckard all of a sudden wanting to have sex with, or all of a sudden having sex with rachel here i mean it's weird um i kind of feel like i saw it coming like i feel like as he came to sympathize more with the androids it was like he is attracted to her i don't know i will say that he's like really nonchalant about it with his wife like throughout yeah. the rest of the novel and before yeah i mean it's clear that at least philip k dick doesn't see this as some sort of like real indiscretion yeah i don't know and part, maybe because he this is the whole question of like it's a thing right like is it cheating if you're having sex with an object and it's not an actual person but this whole book is kind of about how deckard's starting to view them as people so there's a lot of like gray area there um but yeah this is essentially like a really advanced model of a sex robot coming out of ja japan right now yeah i don't know like it is I, I, there is like some legit legitimate kind of philosophical questions there i guess yeah i mean i feel like it's definitely cheating in this situation like it just seems like too real it's just, yeah that's just my take but you away. can also see like i can see the incremental you know over time it's like you know say you have a toaster and we're take sex out of it but you have a toaster and <laughs> obviously um and like and you have sex with it yeah over time you have sex with it now over time it's getting more and more intelligent right and like they keep like they're doing upgrades to it and um you install new chips and like at first it's just like would you like some toast and you're like yes and then you throw some toast and it toasts for you that's it but then like over time it starts asking you about your day and it starts like it's like siri right right the advancement of siri and like at a certain point that your toaster essentially has consciousness and is a quote-unquote being but i can see that like 
where that happens and at what point you recognize that as being a thing is really hard to say. Like, at what point is it, like, do you recognize that? Yeah. Because it's going to be an incremental improvement. I right? feel like this is going to be problems that people are going to start to run into in the next, like, 10, 15 years. Yeah, and that's what makes this novel so interesting to me because this is stuff that I think with the dawn of AI we are dealing with right now. And that's why Westworld is such a popular show, I think, too, right? Like it's dealing with a lot of the same stuff. I, I continued to be amazed at a lot of the themes being so, so similar to Westworld. So I feel like this is a good place to stop and uh, let our listeners know that this episode is sponsored by Audible. Uh, we were able to get an affiliate link, which is audibletrial.com forward slash ink to film. And uh, what you get is 30 free days for Audible and a one free credit which you can get any book in their collection. I think they have like 180,000 books or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I think, I said it last time, I, I think Audible is the perfect sponsor for our podcast. I think this is a great way if you are curious about this book or any other book, you know, whether it's it that we covered before or just another book you've been putting off that you wanted, you've always wanted to check out. Um, basically, our gift to you, you can have this free, you can have this free copy and you can go read it. And then if you don't like the service, you can always cancel. Um, but it's a trial, right? And so, yeah, you go to audibletrial.com forward slash ink to film and you're going to get, yeah, you're going to get those 30 free days. You're going to get that uh, free credit. Yeah. And if you wanted to go ahead and start that free trial, it would really help us out as well if you use our link. Um, I mean, I'll say they have a huge collection of books. I know they have Harry Potter on there, which is something I definitely recommend. That was a huge part of my childhood. Um, they've got everything. So if you want to go check it out, go ahead and use our free link. I know you you checked that link out and you told me that it wasn't quite clear once you clicked on it that you were actually going to, uh, you were doing anything different than just on the website. But that that is, if you type that into your browser, I guess I should say, like you are doing it. You, you will just see the free trial and you are helping us, it, it it logs that. Yeah, so again, the, the link is just audibletrial.com forward slash ink to film. All right, let's get back into the next chapter here. So um, this is where Rachel Rosen first reveals that her life expectancy is only four years because of um, something about like cell degeneration they haven't been able to figure out. Which at first I, I thought they were talking about like a battery, but I think they're actually talking about like the cells in the body die over time. So Deckard says, if you were a human, I would marry you like in a heartbeat, essentially. So he's like kind of head over heels right now for her. And he's, and he says, he thinks it's because you're a biological being, not an electric being like by that electric sheep I had. So we're like full into like, Andes are people, right? Like at this point, at this point in the novel, like he's in love with her. He's ready to like leave his wife maybe and be with Rachel. Um, and then all of a sudden the tables are turned. And she says, you know, I, 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 I know that you won't be able to kill these Andes now after being with me. No bounty hunter has, except Phil Resch. He was able to do it. And so she essentially reveals that she slept with a bunch of bounty hunters in the past for the particular purpose of making it so that they will no longer kill Andes. And she has slept with Phil Resch in particular, and that he's the only one who was able to then turn around and keep killing Andes. And Deckard, you know, in a moment of this kind of like machismo stuff like he it seems like he's almost more upset that she's slept with someone he knows than anything else like that seems to just like really get to him he can't believe that she that she had sex with phil and so he pulls over the hover car and he's like well you know i'm gonna kill you 
and that'll show you that I can still do this. And um, she kind of gets resigned to it and says, okay, you know, and she like turns around and um, he gets really upset because he's like, man, all you, you androids always like get resigned to your death. And that really bothers me because he notices, notes that that's the difference between them and humans. He realizes that uh, Phil basically did exactly this and that he killed the version of Rachel that he, that he, he had sex with, I guess. And so then he realizes, like, oh, I can't do this. He says, I'm going to take you back to your car. And he drives off to drop her off at her car. Yeah, yeah. she she flips on the radio and she wants to listen to Buster Friendly, who we, we learn is going to have a big expose. And then that's the end of the chapter. So, yeah, what did you think of this, like, kind of table turns? She revealing that her, she has these ulterior motives. This is, I mean, this is her manipulating the feelings that that Rick is starting to get towards all androids just in general. Like he's starting to realize that they are people. And then at the drop of a hat, she was just like, well, also we are androids and we don't have the empathy. We don't care about you. Like she doesn't care what she's done. This has all been part of the plan. Right. And then it was, I was surprised that she was like this, like sex robot that went around and like tricked bounty hunters into no longer killing androids. Like I didn't see that coming at all. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because she said she's done it like seven or eight other times, and I, and I was curious, and she says that she did, like, basically did it with Phil Resch, but it seems to me like maybe the, like, other versions of her did it, like, or was it actually her, like, unit? Like, I couldn't tell. Yeah, it's kind of left ambiguous. Like, I, I, I feel like my read on it was that it was her, but I could easily have been another model. Yeah, but then he says later that he thinks Phil killed the version that he slept with like after he was done and that's why he can't kill her because he doesn't want to do the same thing that phil did yeah that's true i don't know so yeah chapter 18 um the andes want to watch the buster friendly show they know he's going to do this expose so they send john back to the other apartment to get the tv set he does that brings it back and they all turn it on and they basically tell him to like shut up because they're going to be watching this show and he starts to realize like hmm, they're taking advantage of me but i don't really care like they're my friends i like them so it's okay that they're exploiting me um and they send him to like go finish moving the stuff so he goes back down to the other apartment and on, on his way down he notices movement and he catches this spider which we know from other discussions like even insects are worth something now like they're 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 like these protected you know protected things because there's just not any of them left and so him fighting a spider is like this really happy moment for him and so he puts it in this little bottle he has and takes it back up to the apartment to show them and he has he shows it to them and um pris is immediately like Oh, why does it have so many legs? I wonder if it could. Uh, I wonder if it could move if it had less of them. And John's like, "What the hell's happening?" And he's kind of like shell shocked. And this is another moment of like kind of the androids turning the tables, right? And like kind of revealing their true selves. Ermagard is also like, "Oh yeah, let's let's see what happens if we clip off the legs." And she pulls out these like little scissors. And while they're doing this, like they take it into the kitchen to do it. The Buster Friendly show is going on, and um, we learned that the Buster Friendly expose is that he's um, revealing that Mercer is just an actor on a soundstage, and he said that he like went and found the actor and was able to talk to him, and he's just this old guy, and he's been able to prove that like the the moon that you see when you're when you're fused with Mercer is just like painted on, it's not real, and 
So that's going on, and at the same time, um, Pris is, like, clipping the legs off of this spider one at a time, and John is, like, you know, kind of freaking out because he can't believe that he's doing this. And then he grabs the spider and runs over to the sink and drowns it, um, basically to put it out of his misery. And then he has this, like, weird breakdown where he starts, like, hallucinating and thinking about breaking things and the world falling apart. And then all of a sudden he's at the empathy box and he's communing with Mercer. And um, while he's communing with Mercer, or fusing with Mercer, um, Mercer restores the spider and, like, hands it to him. Right then, an alarm goes off, and the alarm is notifying everybody that a bounty hunter has entered the building. This this scene was uh, very similar, I guess, in tone to the other one, where all of a sudden, everything John thought he knew about these people is kind of being turned, and he's and they're, they're showing themselves to be vicious and to not care. Although it's, it is ironic that it is a spider, which, like, it's a good job to pick something that most people don't care about, but in this moment... PKD definitely makes you care about this spider. Yeah, I think this chapter um, kind of started to touch on your point when you were talking about how Philip K. Dick was was kind of getting us on the side of the androids, and I was on the I was yeah. on their side as well up to this point. And then the spider was there, and then they were all analytical about it and wanted to like cut it apart and didn't really. Ha- and then we really saw that there was no empathy in these androids. And then that's when I was like, oh, they can be the, like having no empathy can be like evil. Yeah, exactly. There's something that Ermgard says when they first find out that that Mercer is like a fraud. Basically, she 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 kind of gets angry and she talks about how since empathy, this empathy, all of this empathy stuff is a lie, then they're the androids and the humans really are no different. So there is no difference between them yeah. and there's no reason why this should be happening. And she she sees it as like now they have no proof that we're any different. Yeah, it is an interesting kind of from their point of view, them trying to tell themselves that they're no different than humans right now of course their actions are you know showing that to be false so i don't know there's also like a lot of talk about roy being this like quasi religious figure he's like super religious but like we don't get a lot of that so i don't what did you what did you think of that the fact that roy doesn't seem to be i don't know like he doesn't say a lot that i would classify as religious yeah i feel like it's kind of like a cult almost like i guess that's kind of what i got out of it like they all all the androids yeah. bought into him as this leader and they're just following along with him and they they kind of worship him as a as an android leader i guess what i'm saying is like i wanted i wanted more proof of that like i wanted to see him doing more of that and instead it's just kind of told us but we don't actually see him being very like religious or spiritual yeah that's true other than other than the fact that they all like blindly follow him there really isn't much of yeah. that Okay, so um, Pris tells, this is chapter 19, Pris tells uh, John to go to the door when the bounty hunter arrives and show your ID and basically don't let him in by any, you know, no matter what he says. And they all kind of hide in the in the apartment. And then John uh, basically just walks out into the hall to like look and see if the bounty hunter's out there. And he doesn't see him. And then he like re- realizes he has this new spider in his hand and he wants to go outside and release it. So he goes, walks out to like this like garden terrace or something and he releases the spider into the grass and Deckard is there and he sees him do this. And he says, you know, why did you just do that? That's worth something. And John says, you know, I wanted it to be free. If I take it back in there, she's going to cut it up again and reveals essentially that the androids are up in in the apartment waiting for waiting for him. 
And I don't know, I thought it was interesting, the, like, the phrasing there, like, you know, I want it to be free. Which is something that, like, none of these animals are. You know what I mean? Like, all these animals that people own are, are kind of kept in cages or kept on rooftops. And and this is the first time where we see someone, like, thinking about an animal as, a thi- as, like, an, as like, a living being that he wants to get away from suffering. I think it's just that John is, like, a, like he's beyond the societal norms and everything. Like, he hasn't bought into it. He's kind of off the grid. And so, like, it's just, like, human, his nature is to be caring. There's, like, the empathy, that that natural empathy. Yeah, and, I mean, he's a chicken head, too. So, in his intellect, so maybe there's something about, like, how his intellect isn't getting in the way. Like, he because he's, like, simpler, maybe he's able to connect more. So, um, Deckard says, like, um, you know, tell me where they are. And, and John says, I'm not going to tell you. And, and basically, Deckard gives up and says, okay, well, I'm just going to go on without you. So he goes up into the building. And on his way up, he sees a figure that we think is probably one of the Andes. But come to find out, it's Mercer, and who has just appeared in the world to talk to him and warns him about um, one of the, basically, one of the Andes is coming up the stairs to get the drop on you and it's going to be the hardest one for you to kill and sure enough he turns around and he thinks he sees rachel and there's a moment and it's, i thought it was almost kind of silly because like come on he knew that this andy was here but he thinks that it's rachel and he's like oh you sh- you you came back you shouldn't have done that and then he realizes that she's wearing other clothes realizes that it's pris and she's like kind of charging up at him and he like blows her away essentially with his gun um, then like she drops a like a laser pistol yeah i don't know if we ever like fully addressed it but um pris and, and rachel are like identical androids so yeah. that's that's like where that came across is like when he had sex with the when with rachel and he realized that pris was the exact same and they were talking about them being so similar um he, that's why he was having trouble with it because they were identical and um something i wanted to talk about from before was the what did you think of the because Mercer's like now showing up in the world and like what did you think about the fact that one he like manifested this spider for Isidore? Yeah, that's why I kind of said um, quasi godlike figure. Um, and you and I think you said Christ-like, and and it seems to me like this is some sort of actual being that is maybe I don't know if you want to call it an alien or if it's maybe it's something that's always been there. Um, and we've just, and like humanity is just able to commune with it now through technology. But yeah, I don't know. I guess I think to me, this is proof that even though the expose quote unquote is going on, um, that's showing him to be this actor that maybe there is like, there is something that is like borrowing the form of this actor or something. I don't know, but there seems to be something really to this Mercer stuff. And the fact that he can manifest in the world is a pretty clear example of that. I think you're right. I think I, I think kind of what Philip K. Dick is trying to get at is that even these like figureheads of religion or whatever else he's trying to talk about, like they're just that they're figureheads. So it's like at the end of the day, it's like it's about the messages and the things that you get out of it. So like if you become a better person because of a religion, like that's a good thing, and that that's more of what mm. you should take out of rather than like worship of a certain. I guess in certain religions, it's like worship God christ whatever it is um yeah but here i think he's trying to just get at like 
empathy and caring for others and being a good person is kind of like you should get that out of it rather than follow these leaders of the of the spirituality or religion yeah i like that um before we leave chris stratton here i wanted to mention this is also how when i was saying earlier that i was kind of right in that she is the same as rachel right so i was right about that and that's why it confused me and i thought that she was the same unit but she's basically just another version of her so like i said that kind of, it's like i was right and wrong at the same time <laughs> yeah you were basically right there because i thought they were going to be like different people and look a little bit different but you were right on with her looking like her. yeah but then like the timeline was 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 not out of order so anyway right and wrong um so deckard goes on to the apartment and knocks and he he pretends to be john isidore at first which kind of works i guess and then um roy opens up the door and he goes inside and i guess it seems like maybe that paralytic thing that roy set up doesn't work because i took it to be there it was calibrated so that one human could be present and now that because Rickard's a human it doesn't go off but he basically has a showdown with the final two uh andy's Roy kind of uh, runs deeper inside the apartment and trying to draw him in. Ermagard tries to get around him and um, he kind of sees it for what it is, shoots her, kills her, which upsets Roy, um, who like cries out and then Deckard kills him. Really a pretty quick little showdown here when she, he retires the final two. To me, I like so like I liked it, but it felt a little bit anticlimactic to me. Did you feel that way at all? Yeah, I didn't expect it to. Um, I mean, there's still like, what, two or three chapters left in the book. And so I didn't expect yeah. the showdown to be till the very end and like maybe a chapter after that. And the fact that it happened so quickly. Well, and even, yeah, I agree. It's a little anticlimactic. Yeah, I think I think the whole thing goes down in like two paragraphs, right? Yeah. Like it's fast. I don't know. Maybe that's just a modern thing, but I expected a little bit more action here, I guess. Um, but I guess this book really isn't an action book. So it's also important to keep that in mind. Regardless, he's killed the last two. John Isidore comes up. Although it's funny because John Isidore comes up and it doesn't like set off the thing. So maybe, maybe, I don't know. John Isidore does come up and um, John has seen Pris on the stairs um, dead and he's crying. Um, and then Deckard says, you know, basically Deckard is like, all right, uh, I got to, you know, I got to call back to the office. So ultimately the androids lack of empathy was their own undoing. Because if we're to be, yeah. to believe that the trap would have been set off if John Isidore was in the building, then if they had not, I mean, they were just cutting into the spider and it upset him and it almost made him feel like he wasn't there, like he didn't feel as connected to them. And so because of that, he was empathetic towards the spider and was letting it go. And then there was the alarm didn't go up because of that. So that's a good, that's a good point. And we get into that in the next section a little bit too, this kind of like fate or like the effect of people's decisions. Yeah, you're right. If if they hadn't driven John away, that would have been the difference probably. And Deckard probably would have gotten killed by them and they'd all be, you know, they'd all be quote unquote alive still. But instead they, you know, the decisions were made and, and it played out as it is. So in in the next chapter, um, it's a short one. And basically he calls, he calls um, Harry Bryant, um, his superior. Harry Bryant says, you know, they're going to send a police car by to, to collect the bodies. And John reveals that he wants to move deeper into the city. And Deckard has this moment where he's like, oh, you know, I think there's some room in my apartment. And John's like, no, I don't want to live with you. And you can tell that, like, John still is, like, afraid of him and still kind of views him as this, like, monstrous figure. 
um, which is I think like ties into the, like the guilt that Deckard is feeling over what he's done. And then Deckard uh, gets in his car and heads back home to Iran. And as soon as he shows up, Iran is like kind of upset, and she says, "Our goat is dead." And she reveals that a woman came by that matches the description of Rachel Rosen and basically took the goat and threw it off the roof. And Deckard um, basically says, you know, I got to go. And he goes and gets back in his car and flies off to the north. And this ties back into what you were just saying, I think. Like, it's another it's another moment where he has this thought of, like, I should have killed her. And because I didn't kill her, now my goat is dead. He probably should have killed Rachel Rosen. I guess it's just the the fact that he's it's just to reiterate the fact that he's like empathetic with these androids but at the same time like I definitely didn't expect her to show up there and push the goat off and like how is that like she's got to yeah, be li- like she's th- got to be liable for that now right like she's got to be the Rosen Corporation Yeah you'd think so but I I think there I mean there's another side to it where it almost seems to me like almost like a jilted lover right action and it's like she really expected that after she slept with him that he wasn't going to be able to do to go through with this and 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 the fact that he was like really upset her um maybe because it showed that he didn't care as much as she hoped he would um so again it, it it's it's showing there is some like even though they have no empathy they do care about things and they do care about like she does care about the way he views her otherwise she wouldn't have done this which is not a very logical thing to do it's not like they're like you know like vulcans right just doing only logical stuff like they're they're definitely not right there's definitely that i mean that was a revenge move for sure so she she did it to spite him so yeah it's interesting you know i think it it continues to muddy the pot right about whether or not they're humans or human human like so in the next the next um chapter here deckard goes out to the desolate wastes of basically uh, the border of california and oregon which is described as somewhere that no one would ever live <laughs> which is funny to me because i live in oregon um and um he lands uh he tries to call dave holden to talk to and that's the original bounty hunter who got shot at the very beginning of this but the doctor is like no nah, i won't connect you <laughs> and so he's unable to talk to him which i, I don't know it's interesting that he, they even included this phone call that philip k dick decided to include this phone call but regardless, he can't get through to him, so he gets out of the car, and he goes, and he walks, and he has another, at best I can describe it as, like, another very quasi-religious experience. And this, um, he basically tries to climb a hill, which is very much like what Mercer is doing when they people fuse with him. And he's struggling to climb this hill, and then he starts getting hit with rocks, and then he sees this shadow, and he thinks that it's Mercer, but then he realizes that the shadow is his own shadow, and so he kind of like freaks out and goes back down to get back in the car. And he he calls back to Harry Bryant and can't get him, but instead talks to his his secretary. And the secretary is like looking at him on the screen and says, you look just like Mer- uh, Wilbur Mercer. And he says, I am Wilbur Mercer. I, you know, we have we have permanently fused and I'm sitting here trying to unfuse with him. Which I'm not really sure what that means, but. He sits there waiting to like unfuse with Mercer, I guess, and he hangs up. Well, at first he tells his secretary, I'm no longer with the department. And she says, you need to rest and talk to your wife. And he says, I, you know, I'm one with the Mercer now. And basically 
he uh, he thinks, okay, I need to call my wife. I should have killed Rachel. And so he hangs up and he gets ready to call his wife and then he freezes. And then that's the end of this chapter. I, yeah, it was tough. To, it was tough to figure out what to make of the fact that he like was Mercer and like he's yeah. like maybe it's like exhaust. He's so exhausted and like all of the stresses and everything is like really weighing down on him. And the fact that he should have like his goat is now dead. He's like depressed because of that. And like he's just like sees this moment like i guess you can draw kind of whatever you want from it it's like did he actually see like see mercer or is he yeah. mercer like it all seems like really yeah i thought they were going to reveal that he had been mercer all along or something for a minute here yeah are you familiar with the myth of sisyphus uh, not that i know of so sisyphus you might you might know it when i describe it um is this essentially um this figure from myth that um is like pushing a boulder up a hill. Oh yes. And then he like for eternally, he pushes it to the top of the hill and then it rolls back down mm-hmm. and then he goes back down to the bottom and has to do it again and again and again for all of eternity. Right. Um, and this is used, it was later used by, uh, um, an existentialist got a thinker named Camus, um, as like his big metaphor for existentialism and about how, uh, Sisyphus in his like, effort and his labor that is this unending grind is actually able to find some sort of happiness and so he takes this to be this metaphor for life and that you have to find like your joy in the work you're doing and even though it's this like hopeless grind and then um you know with no end essentially that um that is life and you have to be happy Anyway, I bring all this up, and I could go way on and on about this, but I won't. Um, but I bring it up because I thought this, the imagery here is like a very direct uh, correlation to that, right? Like the fact that he's struggling up a hill, that he keeps doing it over and over again, and even though he's suffering, right? I, was, I, I don't know. I was thinking that maybe there was some sort of connection to that being made. I'm not, I didn't look up the time periods in which um, Camus you know, wrote, was writing his, think, his, his thoughts or and this novel i probably should have but i don't know does it sound like anything's there to you i mean yeah um not only just for the scene as you were like kind of describing that it made me think of the the novel as a whole because it's kind of that idea that like you need to do the things that make you happy and like whether or not mercer is fake whether or not your animal is an electric animal whether or not you know these people are androids or not like it's just like do the things that make you happy and and like that's how you fulfill that's how you're fulfilled in your life i bet someone like i i feel like i could write up like a college essay about you know sisyphus uh existentialism and this novel but i'll i think i'll leave it there i i do think there's something to it i think there's a reason that him climbing this hill is is, is very reminiscent of that myth so Deckard sees um, sees movement, and he gets all excited, and he runs over, and he finds a toad. And this toad is supposed to be extinct. And he's, like, thinking about how, like, oh, my gosh, you get a toad. You get an extinct animal. It's, like, worth millions of dollars. He gets super excited, and he says, I'm going to go surprise Iran. Well, also the interesting thing that we learned, like, right there is that Mercer, apparently, like, his, like, the th- the animals that he feels that are sacred and stuff to this religion are... I forget what the other one was, but a toad was like his main one. So it's like not only is it extinct and extinct and rare, it's also like going like that's like probably the biggest animal, wild animal find of all time. Yeah. 
that's funny you know what it's it's, got, it's like I, I don't know it's like it's a little green reptilian creature it's kind of similar to the turtle i don't know yeah i think yeah i think that uh we're just going to start another podcast where we just talk about animals and fiction yeah for sure um so yeah he 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 drives back we're almost at the end here he finds iran who is getting ready to do her mood organ but um he interrupts it by knocking at the door she sees the toad and at first she's like oh my gosh what is this thing she's a little bit frightened of it and then she like asks to like look at it he gives it to her and she sure enough she finds a control panel on the toad and basically proving that it was an electric toad did you see this coming at all or did it completely catch you by surprise um i humored the idea that it would be electric but i was like okay like phil kiddick is gonna do this like really traditional wrap-up and it's gonna be like really cliche and then like it ended up i was like wow it's gonna end like very very happy isn't it and i just didn't think yeah, that, that like, felt like, like this just this yeah i didn't think it was gonna fit with the tone of the book and stuff so i'm glad that eventually it was like uh despair it wasn't what we thought yeah it's 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 it it ends on an interesting note and that it is this electric toad i i wasn't um i wasn't really in a predicting space at the time but when it went in when it was revealed i remember feeling like that like there's a certain like feeling you get when you read something or even see a movie probably and it just feels so right like it feels right for this for for the for the book and for the moment and when it ended up being this electric toad instead of a real one, like it felt very right to me because it was this whole like religious thing that he was experiencing almost and finding this toad. And the fact that it was not real just really underlines everything that this novel has been about. Now, my first reaction to this was, did the Rosen Corporation put that there? <laughs> to fuck with him. No, I mean, yeah, he doesn't know why it's there. I That's um, my, my own little plot theory. In just my, to fuck with him? Yeah, just to fuck with him. They were like, all right, let's put a toad yeah. right next to him yeah i mean like how would they find him out in the middle of the waste i guess i don't know it would be the only question maybe it was in his car they slipped in his car and it hopped out something yeah I don't know. rachel did anyway uh, we wrote some fanfic about that <laughs> so she um she she says oh maybe i shouldn't have told you because she sees that it like really bums him out um and he says he ba- he basically says he prefers to know even though it's upsetting which i think is also another like that's a kind of a theme for this novel, right? Like to, to know the truth, even if it's upsetting is like ultimately what you want. And then he kind of says like, is this day over? And she confirms to him that it is. And she, she sets his mood or she goes, she says, Oh, let me set your mood organ to a long deserved peace. And he says, okay. And he goes into the bedroom to sleep and, and she can, she sees that he basically is feeling that already. And it's like, Oh, it's not necessary. She's watching him sleep. And then she goes back out to the, um, to the kitchen one final time and she calls the uh electric like the electric animal repair group and asks like how do i take care of this toad because i want to make sure that it lasts because my husband cares about it dearly which is an interesting moment in the 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 idea that she is picking up that he has these genuine feelings for this artificial toad yeah i don't know and that's where the book ends and and i thought it was a really interesting moment to end on i was a little bit worried we were going to have this revelation that she was somehow an android although that doesn't make any sense with the fact that she fuses all the time but i was ready for like one more twist at the end but we didn't get it and i don't know what'd you make of this phone call i feel like it was just her way of like well i have a quote that i want to read that is basically like right from this part and um it's rick thinking about how the 
the toad is electric and he says the spider mercer gave the chicken head isidore it probably was artificial too but it doesn't matter the electric things have their lives too uh paltry as those lives are so yeah it's it's he's come full circle and like i think what we learned in the book is just that like whether or not it's fake it's what you make of it kind of and so like i feel like her phone call kind of like relates back to that by her kind of just seeing that like her husband's like been through all this stuff and he kind of needs this right now like he needs that to at least like either fake it for himself or just be happy with the fact that he has a really nice electric animal yeah it's her it's her um acceptance right of of where he's at and his need to to take care of this animal and it does interestingly mirror what happened earlier in the book with that cat remember that wife who decided she wanted to have the fake cat i don't know yeah so it it kind of comes full circle and it does feel right to me um i was a little i don't know if you noticed this or just me but like after the first chapter we never actually see Deckard interact with his electric sheep anymore. Like it's completely ignored throughout all these other animals and like the toad showing up at the end. And like, they never really talk about the fact they still have a sheep up on the roof. They never got rid of it. I don't know. Like, yeah. Is there anything, I don't know. Were you, were you surprised we didn't get any more of the sheep? I guess I kind of felt like it was something that was left untouched for sure. But I, I don't know. I think it was just that he just didn't care about it. Cause it was like, it felt like so wrong to him to be like faking it and stuff. And like, as all these other things are unfolding, yeah. he cared less about but it. He has this fake toad. Now. Yeah. But at the end of the it's day, like, I think they should, there should have been at least a comment about how he was like, now I have two electric animals and it doesn't matter. Or something. Right. Right. Is he going to throw out the sheep in favor of this toad? I doubt I it. Know. I think he probably would just hold on to it. Yeah. Okay, so that's the end of the book. Did you have uh, any general any general stuff you wanted to talk about? Yeah, I wrote down a couple of things. Um, okay. So things that like that came into my head while I was reading the book, um, just like little blurbs that I wrote down is like, in a world where everything is fake, isn't everything actually real? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a that's a safe thing to say here for this for this for this world, um, because humanity itself has gotten to this point where yeah, everything's deteriorated and. It's like a it's like a shadow of its former self. So if you're in a situation like that, especially, what is it? You know, how, and you compare yourself to these other things that don't have empathy. But humanity is showing itself to not really have empathy for the animals. He's definitely muddying the waters there, right? Something else that I that I noticed was like he was trying to get at Philip K. Dick was trying to get at all life is precious. Like I think he was like. I think he was trying to relate it to like race relations and like international relations, and, like a lot of these things where it's like people tend to dehumanize people who are different or like dehumanize people who they don't have to see on a daily basis. And it's something to do with like, there's a message in there, you know, there's like some sort of like morality tale of. Yeah. You know, and one of the things I'm realizing I like about this novel is I can immediately refute what you just said <laughs> um, within the text because he does he does set that up, but he also reveals that the lack of empathy in these androids makes them monstrous, right? Like they're cutting apart this spider and they're they're turning on each other and they're turning on on these humans that have that have developed genuine feelings for them. Yeah, that's true. I didn't even think about it from the viewpoint of like the androids like that. So you're right. It's kind of like he's he's like talking he's on both sides of the fence about it yeah he's showing he's showing both sides of this argument and ultimately it's it's probably left up to us to you know to decide where we land 
Now, I, this does bring me to another question I have. And the, the premise of this book, and probably the movies too, is that androids can't have empathy. They can't have human empathy. Where do you fall on that? Because I kind of feel like I don't know that that's true. So as a uh, just as a fact, in the in as far as what happened in this novel, or just in general, like theoretically, what in general? No, I mean in our world. Okay. Like, do you think that like do you think that there could be an android that would have essentially human empathy? Oh, for sure. I I think so. Yeah. So it's in, it's an interesting choice that in this world that can't that like that's not a thing. That's kind of the fact, right? Well, it's like as like like Rachel was talking about as they perfect their models more and more and more. What happens when they they're artificially able to create empathy then what do you consider those androids because they are they have the empathy yeah. they have everything yeah and if that's the one left if that's the one thing that you say separates us separates androids from being people if you can eliminate that last thing is there any difference at that point the fact so so the the fact the fact is that some you know probably human person is coming up with the code right that encodes them to have empathy the fact that someone creates it means it's artificial yet it still exists so the question becomes is the fact that it was created by a human and it's artificial and you know that it was this like code someone came up with does that take away like the like the essence of its reality if that makes any sense i mean from in my own opinion no i think once you get to a point where I would say once you get to a point where an empathetic AI or Android is able to create on its own another empathetic Android, then you've gotten to the point where they're self-sufficient and they can do it on their own from there on out. And then I think that you're at a point you're that's like that's like the nexus of when everything they become like fully a race of their own like i think that before then they're they're like to be seen as as people as well but like at that point when they're able to create their own offspring per se then that's when they become like completely real so the creation essentially becomes irrelevant at a certain point i think so yeah and i think this is something that humanity is going to encounter maybe within our lifetimes and at a certain point when you get to a level where like androids are feeling and thinking, is it going to become a thing where we need to like start creating laws to protect them? Right. You know, in treating them like actual citizens versus just things we own. And that's going to be a big deal when that happens. Cause people are not going to want to, you know, admit that their sex robot is a person. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's going to be, it's going to be a rough path when it gets there. I, I don't envy the people who have to come up with the laws and like, I don't know, it's going to be tough. Yeah. And like I said, it's going to be an incremental thing. So it's going to be tough to know at the point in which now it's a being and now it's not no longer just a thing. I want to, I wanted to end on, unless you have anything else, I wanted to end on the question of do androids dream of electric sheep? The question posed by the novel. You want to just um, answer it simply or kind of go into it? Cause yeah, yeah. Well, like, and both. Like, what's your answer for that? And then, you know, why do you why do you feel that way? I think. I mean, I think yes. Um, because we see. I think mostly most of my argument is going to be based off of what Rachel does in response to being like scorned. So okay. it's like that kind of shows me that like they want for things, 
And if you want for something, aren't you kind of dreaming? I should say that, sorry to interrupt, but like I should say that we learned that we're not talking about like going to bed and having a dream. We're talking about dream as in like an aspiration. Exactly, yeah. It's clear that that's what they mean by it, right? So yeah, like I was saying, like like if you want something, there, it's clear that like because she, she did that in response to the fact that she wanted something and it didn't go her way. So the fact that she wanted that shows me that she was dreaming. You know, she the want is also the dream. That's her dream. And so, I mean, I think yes. Okay, yeah. I mean, I, I, I like that you took it kind of a different way than I did because to me... The essential question is an electric sheep versus a real one. Essentially, are they are they aspiring to a android version of a thing? Because in this novel, the electric sheep is a goal, or a, I'm sorry, the real sheep is a goal, and so do they have a separate goal of an electric thing? Um, and so, to me, I, I agree. I think I think the answer is yes. And what's interesting about yes in this sense is that maybe androids could have their own, like they could have their own society where they have their own goals and they have their own aspirations. And those aspirations can be unique to them and something that we would never think of. Like we as in humanity would never think of as something to aspire to. And that it could essentially be like a separation they wouldn't necessarily have the same hopes and dreams and goals as a human does. They have their own set. Yeah, yeah, I totally get that. I like that you went that direction with it because I didn't even think of it like that because it's like the separate, yeah, the separation between the, like, do they have separate goals? Like, I like that's a cool way to look at it. And it's and it's the, kind of the brilliance of this little saying is that it leads you, when I first heard it, I immediately think of, like, people talk about, like, having a dream of sheep, like, jumping over a fence or something, right? Or like counting sheep. And like I was thinking about all that stuff, right? Like I wasn't thinking about it being like a real sheep versus an, an electric one. So it's almost like a play on words that ends up actually being like a really kind of profound question. Yeah. Cool title. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, probably too long for a movie. Yeah. <laughs> That's probably why they changed it. And I like Blade Runner as a name. But um, yeah, man, I think I think I'm happy ending it here. Um, we should say that we are going to be covering the 1982 version um of blade runner with harrison ford really scott directing right mm -hmm. yeah final cut no narration in the yeah, final, final cut. cut that's something that we'll address in the movie episode yeah we can talk about the difference i guess because i've read i've heard some of the how there are these different versions out there and then eventually we'll cover the new movie 20 uh blade runner 2049 which is a 2017 movie <laughs> the years are getting a little confusing there um so yeah i hope you we hope you join us for that all right, so uh, that's it. We uh, we hope that you enjoyed it, and if you have any feedback to us, we'd love to get it, especially about the upcoming film film or films we're going to be covering. Uh, you send that to inktofilm at gmail.com, and we'll consider it, maybe read it on the air. Also, you can find us on social media, Ink to Film on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, you know, our website, inktofilm.com. Uh, so there's lots of ways you can find us, reach out to us, and we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, and we all, we'd like to thank Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. He's got a great YouTube channel if you want to check it out. And also thank you to Audible. Again, if you guys want to start your 30-day free trial with one free credit for a book, you can go to audibletrial.com forward slash ink to film, and that would really help us out. Yeah, that would that would be a huge help. Uh, the other thing that would really help us out is if you can subscribe, if you're not already subscribed. 
and you know maybe leave us a rating leave us a review um all these things would really help us to keep this podcast going keep it growing and um let us know that you like what we're doing which we'd love to hear all right i think that's it we will see you for the movie episode thanks a lot i'm luke and i'm james all right see you later